The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would turn to John chapter 2, John chapter 2 will be there this morning. Considering a moment in Jesus' life early in his ministry, and hopefully make some good application this morning in John chapter 2. It's wonderful to be with you this morning and to be able to worship our God together and do that in spirit and in truth. Uh, as a very quick reminder, if you don't have your uh, emblems for the Lord's Supper, they're on the table back there, so you can go ahead and grab those so you're ready after the lesson when we partake of that. Um, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. We look forward to remembering our Lord's death together. And as Mark mentioned in the announcements, we have um, a new member of the Lord's body in our midst. Um, Sky Burke obeyed the gospel on Wednesday night. We're thrilled for you and thrilled to have you as we receive you into our number, uh, as we all have fellowship with God together. And we want you to know that anything you need and, and that we can assist you with and help you grow in spiritually, we certainly want you to ask that of us. And we'd love to encourage you and and edify you as you encourage and edify us, and we all help each other get to heaven. And so we rejoice in the Lord for her obedience to the gospel and the hope of heaven that she now has. In John chapter 2, Jesus, early in his ministry, actually after the first miracle that he performed where he manifested his glory, it says in verse 13 that when the Passover of the Jews was at hand, Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found he was found in the or, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business and when he had made a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overturned the tables and he said to those who sold doves take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of merchandise then his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house has eaten me up. This is a notable event in the life of Jesus, especially at the beginning of his ministry. And it's one that is very well known throughout the world, not just religious world. I think that it's, it's fairly uh, familiar with people in general who know very little about Jesus, about this event where he cleansed the temple, if you will. He drove away those people who were buying and selling in the temple. But I want us to notice in verse 16 the reason for his intense action as he says to those who sold the doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. They were showing irreverence in the temple. This was something that was blatantly obvious as they were not keeping the temple in their own minds and hearts and actions as the holy place of God. And we note what they were doing in verse 14. They were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers were doing their business. And really all of this had to do with the work in the temple. These animals were being bought and sold so that they could be offered as sacrifices to God. This was according to the old law. The money changers were there because in order to give their offering in the temple, they had to have their money exchanged if it was not the proper currency. And so that was even something that had to do with worship to God. But here was the problem. There was a place that was good and right to do these things, and it was not in the temple. Even if they were in contribution to the concept of worship, 
the worship was to be in the temple, not the preparation of those matters. And that's why Jesus did what he did. That was not the place to buy and sell. That was not the place to exchange money. You do that outside of the temple. It's not authorized in this place. In another time when Jesus cleansed the temple, in Matthew 21 and verse 13, Jesus said something similar, but he quoted scripture when he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And so there's another indication as to what might have been occurring here. Not only were they showing an reverence for God and his holy place and the things of God in that holy place, but there is the implication that some of those who are buying and selling and perhaps those who are the money changers were lining their own pockets with wealth from others. They were stealing. They were committing fraud. But notice then in verse 17, after Jesus did this obvious thing in a public manner where everyone saw it, everyone heard him, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. What they remembered was the character that was prophesied concerning the Messiah. He's not going to just be a a person who knows the law. He's not just going to be a person who is kind of symbolically or a person who is very on the surface with spiritual matters. But it's going to come from a deep-seated conviction in the things of God. He's going to be zealous about God's will. God's will, as we see in verse 17, the zeal for his house will eat him up. It's going to be a consuming zeal. Jesus did not just go through the motions. Jesus was fully invested and it showed in his life. In the 119th Psalm in verse 139, the psalmist writes, My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. In other words, that's what defined him. The New American Standard Bible uses that phrase, zeal for your house will consume me. It's what he thought about all the time. It consumed his thoughts. It consumed his actions. It consumed his motives. It consumed his relationships. Jesus didn't go anywhere and talk to anybody without bringing up the truth. We see it in just a couple of chapters after John 2, when he was just going to a well to get some water. And a Samaritan woman was there at Jacob's well. And Jesus, in his question, was not really seeking a drink from that woman, but was seeking to provoke her thoughts to spiritual reality of who he was and what that called her to in submission to his will, it ate him up. It consumed him. That's who Jesus was. That's how he acted. And when we go to the quotation of Psalm 69 in verse 9, we see another implication of the fact of this consuming zeal. It says in Psalm 69 in verse 9, because your zeal for, because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Ultimately, The zeal would consume Jesus, not just in the fact that it defined him in his entirety, but it would be the cause for his own death. He didn't deserve to die. He was certainly an innocent man, but the reason for his crucifixion, at least in part, was because of his zeal for God's house. And the Pharisees hated it. The Jews came to hate it. This man threatened their own positions and because he was so involved in God's will and that on a public level, not hiding his love for God and his faith, it ultimately led to his own demise. You know, everyone is passionate about something 
Jesus demonstrated that in his life. His passion, what consumed him, was the zeal for his father's house, the things of God. And it showed. And you know our passions, what we're zealous about, it shows. It shows in how much it consumes us. There are some things we have a mild interest in, and then there are some things where everyone knows we are invested in that. It takes up our time. It takes up our thoughts. And it finds its way into nearly every conversation. And it consumes our motivation, and it takes up our energy. What is it that consumes us? It's quite obvious as Christians, we need to be careful about what consumes us. We need to be careful about what we're spending time thinking about, what we're spending time consuming into our own lives. We need to be careful about what sparks a fire in us when we're talking to others. We need to be careful about what we spend our time doing. We need to be careful about what we're passionate about, what we're zealous about. And so the question for the hour is, what consumes you? We saw what consumed Jesus. What consumes us? As children of God, we've got to investigate our own lives and really answer that question with candor. What are we so consumed with in our lives? Maybe someone is consumed with work. And this requires honesty. Are you consumed by your occupation? You know, work is something that's good. It's something from God. And don't think for a second that that's what we're suggesting, that work is bad, work is evil. You have to work. In fact, it's commanded of God that we work. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, there were some disorderly people among the brethren. And the apostle Paul said, withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. And he says, you know that what we were, that we were not disorderly among you. And he identifies the specific act of disorder that was in that congregation. He said, nor did we eat anyone's bread in verse eight, free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. He says in verse 10, even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And we hear that some walk disorderly, they're busybodies, not working at all. And we command you to and exhort you through the Lord Jesus that they work in quietness and eat your own bread. The problem there that was worthy of discipline, of withdrawing them, of sending them and delivering them to Satan, as First Corinthians chapter 5 says, is that they were idle. They weren't working. They weren't busy. And they were getting into other people's business. And, and they were requiring people to feed them when they had every ability and opportunity to go work for themselves and receive wages to support themselves. If a man does not work, neither shall he eat. So you've got to work. That's important. And it's going to take up a lot of time. First Timothy 5 and verse 8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So not only do we need to work for ourselves, but we need to work for our family. And if we need to work for our family, and if we don't provide for them, then we're worse than an unbeliever, then we need to take some pride in that. We need to be invested in that and devoted to that. In Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 18, Solomon noted that working is good. He says, here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and do and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. 
It's a blessing from God that we have jobs. It's a blessing from God that we receive wages. It's a blessing from God that we get to enjoy the fruit of our labor. But does it consume you? Does that define your life? I think we see an example of consuming work in the life of someone in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, here's an individual who is saying today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. And what he's forgotten is that he doesn't have that as a guarantee. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Your life is but a vapor, appears for a little while and vanishes away. So work has consumed him to such a degree that he is so arrogant, he thinks tomorrow is promised. He has that within his own power and ability. But not only that, he thinks he's in control instead of the Lord. We should say, if the Lord wills, we shall live to do this and that. But you boast in your arrogance. And on top of that, this work has consumed his life to such a degree that even though he knows to do good, he does not do it. He knows God's will, but he's forsaking God's will in place of work. That's a problem. Work has consumed him. Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 17, Solomon also showed the negative of work. The vanity of work. He says, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. I hated all my labor in which I told under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or, wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all the labor in which I've told and in which I've shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turn my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had told under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man that has not labored for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has told under the sun for all his days are sorrowful. And his work burdensome, even in the night, his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Does your work consume you like that? You're wasting your life if it does. Work is a necessity, but it's not what should define us. How many extra hours do you work? Extra hours are not sinful, but do they take away from your family? Do they cause you to neglect your relationships? Do they cause you to neglect your Lord? Do you take extra shifts? at the expense of the worship of God and the gathering together with the saints in His name? Do you bring work problems and stress back home to where it affects your family? Do you overvalue your work in comparison to what should be the most important thing in your life? Work should never consume us. Is it that your education consumes you? You know, like work, education and wisdom and knowledge, they're good things from God, Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 13 says, I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. In chapter 7 and verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. In chapter 9 and verse 16, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom is wonderful. And not simply that which is derived from God's will. Certainly that is valuable and we should value it above all else. But secular education is a good thing. God created the world, so all that is in the world comes from God. And when we study those things like the sciences and math and, and everything, history, 
Those are good things. We need to have some knowledge. Knowledge is good. God has granted us knowledge. But are we consumed by our education? Like work, it is vain, ultimately. In Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 12, he says, I turn myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I, all, I saw wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his hand, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? Maybe you're in the middle of your life that is devoted to your education. You are going to college or you are in high school or middle school, whatever it may be, and you want to make the good grades. You want to have a knowledge that allows you to pass those tests, but even more than that, that allows you to go into the real world and, and have a job and, and do well at your job. You need to know what's going on in life. God doesn't want us to be ignorant. Education is a good thing. But are you so invested in it that you're spending all your time, it's consuming your life, all your thoughts are about the next study, the next test, the next thing, where I'm going in my education and where it's going to lead me in my occupation. Is that what defines you? Are you a college student or are you a Christian? Are you a student in high school or middle school? Are you a Christian? Are you a self-educated person or are you a disciple of the Lord? This would apply to us all. Chapter 12 and verse 12 of Ecclesiastes Further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books. There is no end and much study is wearisome to the flesh. I'm sure you know that. I think we've all experienced that. Are you occupying all your mental energy with school and education? Do you want to make perfect grades? That's a good and noble goal. But if you want to make perfect grades, does that drive all of your energy, all of your motivation, all of your time? all of your focus at the expense of, again, relationships, at the expense of your faith? Do you study for school more than you study for heaven? And a lot of times we can get so consumed with stuff like that that we start looking at ourselves and defining our self-worth by what we know in the grades that are on our report card. That's dangerous because your worth is in Christ. And the only way you come to realize that and have a stability in life is through a study of His Word and an application of His Word. Does your education consume you? Here's another thing that we need to be on top of, especially during these times. Does worry consume you? You know, as Matthew chapter 6 addresses worry, we see there are many things to be worried about. Jesus says, therefore, I say to you in verse 25, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and body more than clothing. In verse 31, he continues, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? You may say, well, Jeremiah, that's really not that much. That's your clothes. That's where you live. And that's what you eat. It's your necessities. But where do you get those things? It goes all the way back to work and even education. These matters which are necessary for life. We need to look to God and trust Him to provide. 
Because if we're worried about these things, it will consume our entire being. We're going to be worrying about the next paycheck. We're going to be worrying about our financial instability at the time. We're going to be worrying about things like the stock market. We're going to be worried about our future retirement. Everything ties into the necessities of life. But don't worry about those things because that can consume you. It can become overwhelming. In Matthew 6 and 34, Jesus said, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Worry is like a cancer that spreads. It can start at a, at a little measure and then pervade your entire life and all your thoughts. And to the degree that you're not just worried about the things that you, you maybe should be concerned about now, but what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next week, next month, next year, next decade? I'm worried about those things. That's foolish. Because as we go back to James chapter four, you don't have the confidence of even tomorrow. It's foolish to worry because it accomplishes nothing. In verse 27 of the same chapter, Jesus says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? You can't accomplish anything with worry. And this is especially important to understand and examine ourselves whether we are worrying too much these days because of everything that's been going on. We can worry about our necessities. We can worry about our financial security. But you know, a lot of people are reading and watching the news every day with all their free time and all it is doing is provoking worry in the lives of people who have a home laid up for them in heaven and shouldn't be worrying about anything. You know, there are different opinions about the virus, whether it's really dangerous or we shouldn't even worry about it at all. And that's all those are, our opinions. What we need to do, as we'll see next, is is not be consumed with those thoughts, but also not be so worried about it. Maybe you are one of those individuals that is deeply concerned about it. That's okay. Be, have a healthy concern, but don't let that consume you. Stop watching the news. Stop thinking about those things. God is in control. Don't fret over your future financially even. And don't overthink your physical health because this is just a tent anyway. Stop worrying so much because that's going to lead you away from the truth, away from God. And that's the very context of chapter 6 in Matthew. People are worrying about money. People are worrying about their necessities and it splits their vision. You'll either hate God and love mammon, but you can't love both. Consider one more thing. Are you consumed with matters pertaining to the scriptures, at least accordingly, that are defined as liberties or opinions or matters of indifference. And on Wednesday, Lord willing, we'll be studying Romans chapter 14, which is a context of liberties, of matters of indifference. And there's a warning. Don't judge each other. Don't despise each other based on these matters, which don't even matter. First Corinthians 6 and verse 12, the apostle warns that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. What does that look like? When something that God doesn't care about at all, you care the most about. It's become your master. It consumes you. As I mentioned in Romans 14, the matter at hand was one believes he may eat all things. One who is weak eats only vegetables. It's a liberty to eat meat. There is no unclean thing under the gospel dispensation. And some people, even though understanding that intellectually, couldn't quite get to that point with their conscience. And so there was a difference 
if you will, in conscience, or maybe even we could say in opinion. And someone is able to eat those things, so he's despising the one who doesn't have the strength to do it. And the one who doesn't have the strength to do it is judging the one who does have the strength of conscience to do it. And Paul says, wait a second, people. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with this. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Or as 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 8 says, food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat, are we the better, or if we do not eat, are we the worse. And circumcision falls into that. And people were binding circumcision and sinning and doing so. But circumcision was a matter of indifference to God. In Christ Jesus, Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Are you being consumed by all of these opinions that we can have and we have the right to have in this life? But are you consumed to them to such a degree that it's causing strife between brethren or not even just brethren, between people at the workplace or people in school or your friends or family or whatever? James chapter four, he really addresses a subject of liberty where people were judging people based on things that God did not speak anything about as regarding judgment and commands. And he says, don't speak evil of one another, brother. And he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? In other words, Christ has made the judgments. He's given the law and it's his law that either saves us or condemns us. Not these liberties, not your opinions. Those are indifferent matters. And so again, about the virus. We all have varying opinions. We all have varying convictions and all the things related to it, the policies and the regulations, what the government is doing or what the government is not doing and the politics involved. No one's saying there's not politics involved, but those things God doesn't care about. Think about that. We get so wrapped up in politics and and patriotism, and it's not wrong to be involved in either one of those. Like I said, we should know what's going on and we can have pride for our country. We live in a free country and we're tremendously blessed by that in a spiritual way because we can serve God and worship him without fear of persecution, at least now. And it's okay to have pride in that, to think about that. But that doesn't get you to heaven. That is not what our life is about as Christians. But sometimes Christians allow those things to consume their lives. And it affects relationships, even in the church. It affects the way people view them. We are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. We are not to go out and make Republicans or Democrats. We're to go out and make disciples of Christ. These things should not consume us. We're not to reprove each other of any political view or value. We're to reprove each other of sin and educate each other and edify each other of the gospel of Christ. These are things that are not in and of themselves sinful, save worry. But they're things that shouldn't consume our lives. We've got to examine ourselves to make sure that what we're being consumed with is what we should be consumed with. Consider Jesus back in John chapter 2 in verses 16 through 17. He said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. He has a zeal for things concerning God. And it wasn't just things concerning the physical temple. In Matthew 24, he would prophesy about the destruction of the temple that eventually happened in AD 70. If the temple in and of itself physically was something so great and valuable, God would never have let it be destroyed. 
In Acts chapter 7, Jesus makes the point that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. He's spirit. Jesus is not wrapped up in the physical temple. Jesus is wrapped up in the will of God. In Matthew 21 and verse 13, we noted, noticed he says, My house shall not be called a house of prayer or shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. This is a place dedicated to holy purposes and you are despising it. Jesus' zeal, what consumed his entire life, the whole reason he came to earth was his Father's will. And it showed every second of every day of his entire life. We see it from his early years when he was but a boy in Luke 2, 49, when his parents finally found him after they lost him. He was in the temple and he said, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? As he was asking questions and answering questions and studying with those who are learned in God's will, it was about his father's business all the way to the end of his life. When in the garden in his prayer in Matthew 26, 39, he says, oh, father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know what? That consuming zeal for the Father's will, it's going to hurt sometimes. As Psalm 69 and verse 9 indicated, that was quoted by Matthew or John in regard to Jesus. His apostles remembered, zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. If we are zealous for God's will like Jesus was, like Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, we will suffer persecution. It pervaded his entire life. It's what defined him. But consider what God's house is now. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes to the young evangelist and says, If I am delayed, I write, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We don't serve God in a temple. This building is of no significance. We could be outside under the tree without a building, and could worship God in spirit and truth just the same. God's house are those who are saved. It's us. It's those who have been added to God's family and are therefore the support of God on earth of the truth. Jesus is no longer preaching in flesh and blood. He's teaching through His inspired will, but that communicated through the agency of His disciples, as Matthew 28 and verses 18 through 20 indicate. And so we should be consumed with matters pertaining to Christ's body, the church, the house of God. We recently studied from Romans chapter 12 the application of the mercies of God as we present our bodies a living sacrifice. And he first noted the humility we should have, especially as members of the body. And he says, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being one are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Notice this, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. That should consume us. What can I do in contribution to the work of the local church of which I'm a part? There are certain things I may not be allowed to do according to God's will, but there are certainly things that I can do. If you think that there's nothing you can do, then you're fooling yourself at best. Probably at worst, you're just being negligent. We should have a consuming zeal about the things of God and, and helping each other get to heaven and helping promote the truth and defend the truth and edifying each other. That's what we should be thinking about, not coming to church on Sunday morning thinking about how we're going to sit in the pew and be passive 
so that we can go home and fill our time in. But we're going to be an active and contributing member of that body. That's what our zeal should be about. As verse 11 indicates, we're not lagging in diligence, but we're fervent in spirit serving the Lord. And if the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, then we should be zealous and that should consume us with matters pertaining to the truth. Psalm 119 and verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. That means it's always on my mind. It's always on my mind. You have a project at work and it's super important and and your job really depends upon that. Is that going to be always on your mind? Probably. You're going to need to be thinking a lot about that. But what about the Word of God, which we'll be judged by? Is that always on your mind? That should consume us in our thoughts. And it should lead to our diligent study because we're going to be judged by that, so we want to be approved of God by that. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God. A worker does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. When's the last time we studied? Was it this morning? Was it yesterday? Was it Friday? Are we being diligent students of God's Word? Jude 3 says, While I was very diligent to write to you, Jude says, concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. When someone says something that is false, that is false doctrine, that is anti-biblical, that is anti-Christ, do we let it slide or do we contend for the faith? Because it is our responsibility. We've all been guilty of that. I speak firstly for myself where there have been opportunities, when I have heard someone say something that was obviously erroneous, I know the scripture and that's not right. But I thought, they're not even talking to me and, and it's not my, my, my consideration, it's not my business, I'm just going to let it go. We're the pillar and ground of the truth and it's being offended. Do we contend for the faith? Does that eat us up? And, and are we constantly involved in seeking to make disciples. As Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Are we consumed? Are we obsessed, if you will, with teaching people the gospel? We should be. We should be on fire for the Lord in those things. But lastly and and briefly, I want us to notice the nature of this consuming will and and doing this or consuming zeal that Jesus had and doing this because we need to ask the question, are we consumed with the zeal for God's house? We may think we are, but are we really? There's a way to identify whether we are or not. And and if we know we're not, how do we get to that point? And, And why is being zealous for things of work and things of school and, and matters of opinion and politics and, and, and worrying so much. Why are those things so bad and so misleading? Well, I think we can see all that in the nature of the zeal that consumed Christ's life. I want us to notice firstly that that zeal which consumed him was informed zeal. As we noted, he quoted from the Old Testament, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves. He knew God's word. That's why he was so concerned about this. If he didn't know a lick of scripture, he wouldn't have saw what was going on in the temple and thought, I got to do something about it. He was informed. How do we become zealous for the things of God? You can't if you don't know about them. You know, you can pretty much become zealous and interested in anything if you give it enough time. There may be some things, and I, I agree with you, there's some things that I think that I, w- I could never be interested in that. doesn't matter how many times you tell me about it or how many times I look at it, I- I'm not going to be interested in that. Maybe so, but the majority of things, if you spend enough time in it, you're going to become acclimated to it. 
and you can become zealous. But you're not going to be able to be zealous for God's Word. It's not going to be consuming your life if you're not informed of it. It starts with our heart. As Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. And we see the negative of that in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 20. What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murder, so on and so forth. Everything we do that is evil, it comes and starts in the heart. So everything we do that is righteous, like Jesus cleansing the temple, it starts in our heart as well. You will not be consumed with a zeal for God's word in his house unless you're informed of it. And so if you think you're zealous for God's word, but what you're doing and your actions that maybe we think manifest that zeal, they're not in accordance with God's word, then we're fooling ourselves because zeal for God's house is something which is informed. Galatians 4 and verse 17, Paul talks about how we're to be zealous for a good thing when the false teachers were zealously courting them, but for no good, and they wanted to exclude them that they may be zealous for them. They just wanted the attention and following. But Paul says it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you, my little children for whom I labor in birth birth again until Christ is formed in you, I'd like you to be present with you and to change your tone for I have doubts about you. It's good to be zealous in a good thing. So what is the good thing? The gospel defines that and Paul defines that until Christ is formed in you. That's what you should be zealous about, not about the false teachers. Whatever consumes us needs to be a good thing or else it does us no good. And the only way that happens is to be informed. The Jews weren't informed as Romans 10 and verse 2 says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It doesn't matter if you have zeal, if the zeal doesn't come from an infallible standard. Consuming zeal should not be based in anything false or frivolous, things of this earth, but also not things that are not true. We shouldn't waste our time on the ephemeral when we have the knowledge of the eternal. We shouldn't be consumed with the information of this world and not with the information of spiritual life in God's word. The zeal Jesus had came from a knowledge of God's will. But notice also that this was controlled zeal. Someone says Jesus flew off the handle, but no, his decisions were deliberate. If he flew off the handle, he sinned. The Bible tells us that he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4 tells us this. Did you notice he took some time? It says that he found these people and when he had made a whip of cords, verse 15, he didn't just run in there, start swinging. He prepared for this. And even if it didn't take him very long, this was certainly something controlled by the Son of God. He knew what he was doing, and he knew it was justified. He knew the difference between indignation and righteous indignation. He even talked about it in John the 16th chapter when he warned his disciples that there would be some that would put them out of the synagogues, and the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service, and these they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. They had a zeal, but not according to knowledge, and so it was uncontrolled. Consider that with our fourth application in regard to what may be consuming us, and we need to be warned about. Because consuming zeal for God's word, it's always going to be in control in the sense of doing what is right, doing what is most valuable, doing what is most needed, doing what is the will of God. Someone may have a strong opinion about something, and they may even feel uh, fool themselves into thinking that their opinion is gospel, and therefore they are having a zeal that is consuming them, that is according to God's will. But in reality we come to find out that like the context of 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, that it was a matter of indifference to God. So here they think they're strong in the faith when in reality they're manifesting their worldliness. Consuming zeal for the things of God will be controlled by the things of God. 
As 1 Corinthians 8 talks about, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to the weak. He talks about this knowledge you have of a liberty and should this brother in Christ for whom Christ died perish because of your liberty and the exercise of that and a lack of love for him. But no, Paul applies it to himself in chapter 9. He shows that even his zeal for God's word was controlled. He says, though though I'm free from all men, in verse 19, I have been made a servant to all that I might win the more. And he explains what he means by that. Becomes all things to all men. And accordingly, if it is controlled by God's will that comes from your informed heart, then if you have that consuming zeal for God and His will and His house, then it'll be active. Someone says, oh, I'm zealous spiritually. I certainly have a consuming zeal for God's work. I care more about God's will and God's ways and and how I live before Him than I do about doing good at work or doing good at school. Or or I care more about my spiritual health than I do my physical health. But if that's the case, it's going to be active. It's going to manifest itself. Jesus saw the irreverence and He didn't just ignore it. He didn't think that it was a matter of indifference. He knew that He had the obligation as God's Son and as one who followed God to deal with that problem. The very concept of consuming zeal is demonstrated in Jesus' life as that which takes up and consumes all of your time, resources, and energy. John chapter 4 and verse 4 says of Jesus' words, I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's what consuming zeal for God's Word looks like. Every day I'm looking to do God's will. And so my head is on a swivel, as Ephesians 5 says in verse 15. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's informed, it's controlled by God's will, and it's active. That's what zeal for God looks like. Not idleness. But I want us to notice one more thing. That this zeal that Jesus manifested was persistent. John's gospel records three different Passovers. And a Passover was an annual observance. And we noted in John 2 and verse 13 that it was at the Passover of the Jews being at hand where he cleansed this temple. But then we read in other places about him cleansing the temple. And we quoted from Matthew 21 and verse 13 where he quoted from the Old Testament, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It's not talking about the same occurrence. This is nearing the end of his ministry. Jesus started his ministry after that miracle in Cana of Galilee manifesting his glory with cleansing the temple because he saw irreverence and disobedience, and toward the end of his ministry, after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, nearing his demise on the cross, he did the same thing. And so what affected him to such a great deal in John 2, early in his ministry, affected him no less in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. The zeal for his father's house was persistent. It endured. You know, some are initially zealous, But then, due to adversity in their lives, that zeal fades away, as the parable of the sower indicates that those who receive the seed on Matthew 13 and verse 20, on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. That's a wonderful thing. You're on fire. You're zealous for the Lord. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, it immediately he stumbles. Zeal that consumes us according to God's word is not something which is shallow. You know, some have their zeal only for a little while, like Matthew 13. But then something else they become zealous 
about consumes them all the more. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10, Demas has forsaken me, Paul says, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. He was a disciple of the Lord. He was a fellow worker of Paul. And even though he was doing these things with Paul and he was obviously working in the gospel with the great apostle Paul, he allowed zeal for something else to supersede his zeal for God. And it died out. So that in some people, they keep doing God's will. And they keep doing what they know is right. They're checking those boxes off. They're going through the motions. But there's no fire there. You might have gone on vacation before and visited a congregation and maybe there's a lot of people there, maybe there's not a lot of people there, but you just felt that there wasn't much fervidness in that congregation. There wasn't much energy. And I'm not talking about jumping up and clapping on all of those things, but I'm talking about people showing up and leaving the second that there's a dismissal, people not singing very loud, and, and you look around and you just see people ignoring the Word of God, and there's no zeal there, but they're there. That's what was happening with Ephesus in Revelation 2. And there's not a, a negative tone in Ephesians, the book. But to this point in time, they had lost their zeal. They weren't feeding it. He says, I know your works, labor, patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who say their apostles found them liars, and you've persevered. You have patience and labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. They were doing everything right on the surface, but they were not on fire for the Lord. And that's a problem. As the church of the Laodiceans in chapter 3 had become lukewarm. I could wish that you were cold or hot, but you're lukewarm and I'll vomit you out of my mouth is what Jesus said. He wants us to be consumed, not just involved, consumed with his will. Does his God, does God's will consume us? What does our life consist of? And it's going to manifest in activity. What's most important to us? And are we cultivating this all consuming zeal for the will of God? And people will, as we see in Psalm 69 and verse 9, they will look at that consuming zeal. They'll think you're mad. They'll think you're a nut. Just like the Apostle Paul mentioned in Acts 26, Festus said, you're mad. And he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and of reason. It's good and it's right and it's wholesome and it's wonderful and it's worth it being consumed by these things. But are we? Or are we allowing something else to take precedence? We need to learn from Jesus and make sure we're motivated with God's will. If you're here this morning and have not obeyed the gospel, that's the first step to cultivating a zeal for God's word. Just ask Sky about it. How, how joyous an occasion is when someone obeys the gospel. Everything changes the moment you come out of that water. You are no longer guilty before God and you are no longer a spiritual orphan, but you belong to the household of God and He is your Father and Christ is your brother. What a wonderful thing that is. That'll get you going. But you've got to obey the gospel by being baptized in Christ for the remission of your sins. And we can assist you in that if you want to do that this morning. If you have obeyed the gospel, and maybe you remember the time when you were so on fire for the Lord, but that's kind of waned. It's kind of died out. Maybe we can pray for you. Maybe we can assist you in any way that is spiritual. If that's the case, and you need to come forward, and we can assist you, we ask you to do so as we stand and sing the song that was selected.